this to me is like the really fascinating material. We don't know what the answer is, but we're looking for patterns. I think we're looking at kind of a type of cosmic alchemy. The story slowly Still, a lot of people don't know that this technology actually exists. The possibilities here are pretty mind boggling. We can't just believe that it was the work of these lone troubled individuals. And like a conspiracy theorist would look at that and say, well, they, the, the Illuminati or somebody planned this right now. Here on Conspiracy Normal, guys, it's uh, yet another show. This is episode two fifty nine. Oh man, I know. And uh, we are robless. You may be dead in a ditch somewhere. We're, we're, <laughs> we're not really sure. Or yes. maybe on his easy on, on his easy chair. Yes, chilling. <laughs> we are hunkered down in Studio B, ready for the yeah. We got uh, we got bongo drums. We got to uh, we got to uh, hypnotizing self help records. Uh, Walter, welcome back to the show. By the yeah. way, we got Walter Bosley. Um, do you know? Thanks any- for having me back. Absolutely, it's it's always a pleasure to have you. I mean, you you definitely are a good friend of the show, and I think this may be like uh, part sixty five of the Walter Bosley experience. I'm I'm playing <laughs> with actually um, taking all the interviews of yours because I uh-huh. I've post everything okay. on YouTube now. Um, along with the iTunes version or whatever, but I yeah. don't. But that was only from like episode one ninety six or something. So there, I think I've got two or three of your interviews on YouTube. But I'm pl- thinking about putting the rest of like all the ones we've done, and just having a playlist mm-hmm. of nothing but your stuff, because that's how important I think that uh, your your material is. Oh wow! But well, I was, hey, I'm flattered. Thank you. But I was going to ask you about, um, do you know anything about uh, self-help hypnotism? No. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Sir, for y'all got, got some kind of weird, like, what, what is it that you got? What is that? Oh, it's just, you know, some of that weird new thought businessman stuff from mid-century. And it's like a self-hypnosis uh, into success. So it's like, you know, telling you how you're already rich and you're supposed to go to sleep and listen to it. <laughs> it's on blue vinyl. It's kind of cool. Yeah, we were listening to it earlier and we thought we, we all of a sudden had the, this idea to, to go kill the Pope or something. It was, <laughs> was kind of weird. <laughs> <laughs> but that's actually, that stuff, mind control is actually kind of an element of this book, believe it or not, on the mm-hmm. esoteric Napoleon, which is what we're talking about tonight. Um, you know, like I said, we've done, I think an interview for just about every book you've written at this point. And so this is secret missions Four. I think we combined a Mm -hmm. few. I think the, the empire of the wheel books, we may have combined them all in one interview, but, um, Mm -hmm. secret missions Four. So how did this come to be a secret missions book? And what interested you in writing about Napoleon? Because Napoleon is not someone that you think of normally as being like kind of like an esotericist. 
Right, unless you've heard certain little apocryphal tales, one in particular. But basically, to answer your question, I never imagined, you know, for the longest time, I, I never would have imagined myself writing a book about Napoleon Bonaparte. And, you know, some years back, about 15 years or so, a little longer, I guess almost 20, I had first heard the story about Napoleon uh, spending the night in the Great Pyramid. And, you know, where that intrigued me, I didn't know much about it. I didn't pursue much about it. Um, And then over the years, uh, the last 20 years, particularly the last 10 years, I became a little more interested in the Louisiana Purchase. And I, I learned about this mystery that uh, Meriwether Lewis, of the one of the commanders of the Lewis and Clark expedition, was possibly murdered. And I thought, wow, that's interesting. And there's an author out there, I don't know if you guys know him or interviewed him, Xaviant Hayes. He wrote a book about this, about, you know, the 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 mystery of the murder of Meriwether Lewis. And I read that, and it began to really intrigue me in in different ways um, about the Louisiana Purchase from the point of view of, well, why would someone murder Lewis? Did it have to do with Louisiana territory? You know, what's going on there? And then also we have, you know, those ancient uh, American mysteries, you know, uh, the possibility of a lost civilization um, that had been here before you know, known history and all all that such. Then there's Cahokia, of course, which is a little north um, of the boundaries of the Louisiana Territory, but, you know, still um, someone exploring, you know, could have gone that far north. Or were there other sites um, associated with the, the same civilization? And, and uh, could this be um, or could this have something to do with why Meriwether Lewis was murdered, or did it have more to do with financial stuff and on and so forth? So that interest led to discussions with uh, my good friend, Joseph Farrell. And uh, about mm, four years ago, we ha- we started discussing the uh, the mysteries of Louisiana Territory, the Louisiana Purchase, and and uh, we we talked about Napoleon and what he might have been up to, and and you know what was his motive of selling the Louisiana Territory to the United States, which you know most people know that um, Jefferson got it at an incredibly just ridiculously low price, and it doubled the size of the then United States. So. You know, thinking of Louisiana Territory, that mystery, and then also remembering this weird tale about um, this night that Napoleon allegedly spent in the king's chamber of the Great Pyramid. And he allegedly comes out of the pyramid um, shaken and pale and, you know, something obviously very weird had happened to him. But when he was asked about it, he told his people, you know, the person who asked him um, that you, you know, you wouldn't believe it if I told you. And that, that's it. That's all we have. And there's only, you know, like one obscure source for that. But it's a story that made the round. So these were the things that were bouncing around, you know, well, uh, gee, what was Napoleon up to? What was he into? What, you know, what's going on there? What happened to him that night in the pyramid? 
And it had been kind of in the back of my mind. I talked about it with Joseph a couple of times over the last few years. And last year, and the only reason I'm going into this long story, because it, it ended up having a huge impact on me. Um, last year, I was uh, visiting Joseph, um, and he took me to his favorite used bookstore where he lives. And uh, I found a book that would have served, um, that serves actually following up on my Cabrillo research from Secret Missions 1, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, as I'm looking around the books, I find this other book that I've heard of, but I had never found. And there was a copy of it, one copy, and that's a book titled uh, Bonaparte in Egypt by J. Christopher Harold. Hmm. And I think it dates back to the 40s. But it's, a, it's kind of a known book among, you know, nerds interested in this stuff. So I got it. I grabbed it. And uh, as I started reading it, I began to realize that I knew virtually nothing about this man, Napoleon Bonaparte, other than the historical propaganda and the caricature that we have been served up for 200 years. You know, that Napoleon was a short uh, megalomaniac who was sullen and glum and fat and balding and walked around with his hand in his vest. And, you know, he was just this big monstrous despot tyrant. And what I was learning just, just initially jumping in with this one book is that there was much more to this guy and that he wasn't some short megalomaniac tyrant. Um, he wasn't a tyrant at all. And he certainly wasn't a despot. And so I, I, and oh, and the other thing is he was deeply, deeply interested in science and archaeology and ancient history and, you know, the mysteries of history in the world. And I never knew that about the guy. You don't, you know, you don't learn that in school. You don't yeah, learn I that in the, that the movies and the TV shows. Right. Yeah. And this was his first love. What I learned basically was, yes, I started reading about him, is that this man was a philosopher scientist. And he was very much interested in the mysteries of, you know, ancient history and, and old ancient places. And, uh, you know, I had, what, written three books in my Secret Missions series about three famous, you know, historical figures who, you know, I think were on this essentially same secret mission, and that was to search for the, uh, you know, the lost technology of the forgotten civilization. And I realized, wow, um, Napoleon Bonaparte, it's looking like he was one of these guys. And I think what really convinced me right out of the gate was in this book, Bonaparte in Egypt, you learn that he appeared to manipulate the French government and the circumstances that indeed existed um, to back his expedition to Egypt, okay? And yeah, he would go there and he would do things that would be good for France and, you know, politically and power-wise and economically, but it appeared obviously to me that he was using these circumstances and all of this as an opportunity to go on this expedition, okay, to uh, dig into the mysteries of uh, ancient Egypt and, you know, through archaeology and, and all this. And he took with him, uh, uh, what was it, a hundred, I think 160-some of the top uh, uh, philosopher-scientists, the, the archaeologists, the engineers, the artists, the um, anthropologists, all these same guys, okay, that would be experts in the disciplines that, that would be required in a search for the lost technology of the forgotten civilization. 
He took them and an, and, and uh, several hundred of of their technicians, okay, and field personnel. He ended up taking 500 experts in the archaeological related sciences and and all this stuff uh, on this expedition. These were non-military people. These were civilians. His military staff was, uh, some of them were just flummoxed. They were like, what the heck? And he treated these guys on the same level of, with the same level of respect as he did his officers. You know, they couldn't figure out why initially. And uh, he gets down into Egypt and, you know, the, the rest I go into in the book, and it's kind of history. What he did, um, this expedition started modern Egyptology, you know, um, as we know it. And um, this is the expedition wherein he spent time inside the pyramid. So by the time I finished reading this one book, I realized, well, i got to read more about this guy. You know, the, the, he goes to Egypt not when he's fat and middle-aged and whatever, he goes when he's this like a young lion, you know, he's uh, uh, not even 30 years old. Right. And, um, uh, he, he, you know, he's slim and young and vibrant. And he's got long hair to his shoulders. He's not, you know, he's not the caricature that we know. And uh, it seems like every move he makes um, can be paired up with some archaeological discovery um, or, you know, some loca- some site or relic. So it, it became clear to me, my gosh, I think this guy is, I, I think he's on one of these secret missions that I write about. And the more I read, the more convinced of that I became. So, you know, I realized early on, oh, that this is it. This is, this is, I've got to do this. I got to dig into this. This guy's the next subject of the secret mission series. And uh, as a, as I was in the writing of the book, um, not long before I finished it, I realized, okay, I'm not going to be able to, in this first volume, put everything that I found or pull every thread. So um, I realized shortly before finishing the book that I was going to need a second volume. And, uh, of course, I started the preliminary research on that. But um, it was really after reading the Herald book and then jumping in um, on another uh, book uh, that theorizes that um, Napoleon um, would have come to America, and it talks about the Bonapartist in America and such. And by the time I read those two books, uh, I was convinced that Napoleon Bonaparte was on his own personal secret mission, as it were, personal quest. To ask about a little background about this invasion of Egypt for people to kind of understand this. Why, why did Napoleon go to Egypt? What was the purpose? And then also too, you mentioned in the book that there is this papyrus that is found that apparently Mm -hmm. plays some kind of key role. And also as Napoleon is going to Egypt, the Knights of Malta are involved with all this too. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, indeed. <clears throat> yes, um, ostensibly, and it, it it is true, it is a fact. Napoleon at the time that he went to Egypt was a rising star, okay? He was uh, undefeated in battle, and um, he had invaded and conquered Italy uh, for France, 
And uh, quite frankly, he did scare some people back in France who, um, you know, had had designs, you know, on power for themselves and such. So you have Napoleon wanting to go to Egypt. And I'm going to get back to the papyrus in a second. You have yeah. Napoleon wanting to go to Egypt and you have France wanting to expand its influence and its empire. OK, and you have Talleyrand and others who would love for this young hotshot rising star to be, you know, thousands of miles away out of France. Yeah, Talleyrand being the the foreign minister of what then was the French Republic. Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Um, So, uh, you you know, you had those those three factors going on and embedded within Napoleon being the guy who convinced the government to back, you know, this uh, expedition was his personal quest. And of course, you know, we'll get into that, but the book goes into, you know, the, uh, the, the evidence um, supporting the idea that he indeed was on this personal quest. And that personal quest, um, I think, began <clears throat> in his youth because of his interests. He was interested in archaeology and ancient history from the time he was a kid. Okay, so I think he he had it in his mind that, you know, he had to get to Egypt for years. Now, when he becomes acquainted with uh, Gaspar Mange, and you'll hear me go back and forth between Mange and Mange, because I'm not quite sure. When I see it printed, there's no accent over the E, so that would indicate that it's Mange, but sometimes, you know. Anyway, when when he meets Gaspar Mange in, uh, I think, um, 1792, uh, I'm... I'm pretty sure he uh, met Mange before the history, the mainstream historians say he did in 1797, 1798. Um, I think the seed had been planted for him to go to Egypt uh, that early. Now, for 20 years, there have been various individuals go to the French government to present, um, uh, to propose an expedition to Egypt. And none of them had ever, you know, uh, been approved. None of them had ever actually been acted upon. There were several of them. And what Napoleon did when he finally did put his plan together, he took um, uh, the best of Baron de Tots. Baron de Tots was the first one, I think, to submit this in uh, 1777. Um, and he just changed a few things, one of them being instead of launching the invasion of Egypt from Crete, Napoleon wanted to do it from Malta, okay? And I'll get back to the significance of that shortly. Now, during the Italian campaign, while Napoleon's got this in his head that he wants to go to Egypt, and while he and his mentor, Gaspar Mange, um, are are certainly talking about Egypt and such, and, uh, you know, these plans, um, Napoleon, in his invasion of Italy, is going around... um, capturing works of art and, uh, you know, sculpture, paintings, and documents, uh, specifically documents that um, either belong to the Vatican or, you know, have some association to uh, Vatican library, you know, type of stuff. And um, Gaspar Mange was uh, one of the two guys himself, and I believe Bertolet, were delegated by Napoleon and the French government organization that they were associated with 
which uh, I forget the title. I don't have it sitting right in front of me, but basically they were in an organization that licensed them, chartered them, so to speak, to uh, collect all the treasures, artworks, and information and technologies and those kinds of spoils of conquered territories. Okay, So as Napoleon's invading with his army, invading Italy, he's delegating Mange and Bertolet to go around collecting all this stuff. And comes the day when Mange presents to him a captured papyrus that is 1,100 years old, okay? We don't know what was in the papyrus. It's interesting that history tells us about Mange presenting this to Napoleon, but it doesn't tell us what was in it, what was written on it. So it's not long after that that Napoleon makes his proposition to the directory for an Egyptian invasion and they gather all the resources, the ships, and these 500 philosopher, scientist, technician types, okay? And off they sail to Malta um, to, to launch the invasion of Egypt from there. And the interesting thing about Malta is that there happened to be um, a, a, a fortress, okay, the, the, the governors of the island, so to speak, were the, um, the, the Knights of Malta, mm-hmm. okay? And uh, in, according to the history, when uh, Napoleon and his forces had the island surrounded and they were, you know, d- demanding entrance into the, uh, the harbor of Valletta, um, the commander of the Knights of Malta is the one who allowed them in. Napoleon later said that he, he would not have been able to land on Malta, conquer Malta, if the, uh, the, the head of the order of the Knights of Malta hadn't, get, hadn't let him in. And when they arrived, um, the command structure of the Knights of Malta cheered their arrival. So, you know, that, that was an interesting little thing there, that um, they seemed to be happy that Napoleon was there, even though technically he was invading. So um, they spend a short period at Malta. Um, Napoleon does some, you know, civic uh, reorganization, makes it better for everybody that lives there. That was his habit, by the way, far from being a tyrant or a despot. And in the end, um, he ends up taking 34, I believe it's 34, members of the Knights of Malta, several of them actual knights, the rest um, being, uh, you know, support personnel, so to speak. And we get no description, no names um, of the specific knights he took with him. We get no description of what their specialty was, because, you know, these guys just didn't sit around in armor with swords waiting to, you know, go around and fight Barbary pirates or whatever, although they did. They were involved with fighting Barbary pirates, but that's not all they did. I mean, just like in any, you know, the Templar Order and others, um, they had their scientists and technician types, their engineers. And I suspect that it was these types of guys from the Order, these knights that Napoleon uh, invited to come along. He didn't force them. He, he recruited them. He talked them into it, and they're like, yeah, you know, they were younger, of course, so they were capable of fighting. But, uh, you know, he recruits these guys from the Order, the Knights of Malta, and off they go to Egypt from there. Um, 
Now, I argue, I suspect that while Napoleon was on Malta, it wasn't just his intention to recruit, you know, some of the knights. I think that the knights were aware of some of the archaeological wonders that we are told, in the case of the Hypogeum, um, were not uh, discovered until decades later, you know, later in the 19th century or the early 20th century. Yeah, I don't see how they wouldn't be. Because the exactly. the knights were there for what over two hundred years. Yeah, yeah it, it doesn't make sense. The knights were yeah. there for a few centuries, and they didn't find the hypogeum. Give me a break. Um, and we're talking about pretty secretive group. Yeah, so I argue that that uh, they were aware of this, and I think I suggest that Napoleon Bonaparte probably got uh, got a little private tour of the hypogeum. And, there, and one of the reasons for that being, you know, a legitimate speculation is that um, there's the hypogeum on Malta, and then there's the, uh, you know, the, there's multiple hypogeums in different places. Um, they believe the original one, at least the oldest one found, being in Egypt. So here you have a number of reasons for Napoleon to stage his invasion of Egypt from Malta instead of Crete. Number one, the Knights. And what they knew, you know, uh, about ancient history. Because remember, the Knights of Malta, okay, when the Templar Knights were disbanded and persecuted, the Knights of Malta um, were one of the main beneficiaries of Templar assets, and that includes information, okay, records and files and books. They also absorbed some of the actual Templar Knights, because once that order was dissolved, not all these guys gave up being knights by any stretch of the imagination. They just joined different orders, and some of the Templars joined the Knights of Malta. But the Knights of Malta got a lot of Templar intelligence and, and information and records, and that would include, okay, um, whatever it was the Templars got out of that n- notorious Fourth Crusade, which, mm-hmm. you know, uh, ended up being the sacking of Constantinople and its version of the Library of Alexandria, which would have included uh, scrolls and books and information that that had been from the Library of Alexandria. So the Knights of Malta, we're talking that kind of information about the ancient world, okay? So that that right there, and here here we have um, here we have Napoleon Bonaparte being practically cheered as he uh, invades their island and then he easily convinces you know 34 of these guys from the order to go with him to Egypt I, I think the reason for that is is that they had expertise in what he was looking for and they, they you know were willing to jump at the chance to get down there and dig into it a little bit that's just one number two um, Napoleon suspected that it either suspected or knew that um, he was going to be looking into things like hypogeums and uh, somehow probably through Gaspar Monge or other Masonic influences and uh, uh, associates in his life, he knew that the hypogeum was on Malta. The Knights of Malta showed it to him. And he, you know, that's probably reason number two why he went to Malta because he, he knew or suspected he was going to encounter some of the same types of ancient sites in Egypt, as one finds on Malta. So, you know, there's, of course, yet another reason. And, and of course, its strategic location is not bad either. 
And that he would use, you know, for instance, you're convincing your country, you know, hey, back my expedition. And by the way, I'm going to go from Malta, not Crete. Well, why Malta, Napoleon? Well, hey, look, you know, it's a strategic position. It's an island in the Mediterranean. And, you know, it'll help us, you know, kind of going against the British and having more assets than them and on and so forth. It just works logistically. And, of course, the government will say, oh, yes, very good. Excellent. Okay. You don't need to tell the government that there's these ancient ruins and mysterious hidden sites there that you want to go see. You don't need to mention that at all. Of course, Um, you just, you know, mm -hmm. Egypt would be strategic too, because even though there's no Suez Canal at the time, you, you, you pretty much are cutting Britain off from India. That I think that was the the goal. I think he had some kind of goal to actually go all the way to India. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. yeah. That, in fact, that makes sense to me that eventually um, he would have. Yeah. Um, but what happened was what something he experienced and figured out in Egypt um, sent him back to France um, pretty quickly. But remember, he was also asked multiple times to return to France early because the people that ultimately pulled off the coup that put him in the first consul seat, uh, they, they needed him back. He needed to get back there. Uh, you know, his, historians have long accused Napoleon of abandoning his expedition, abandoning his army, abandoning Egypt, yeah. and he did not. Uh, there were very legitimate reasons for him to leave when he did. But here's the funny thing. He still spent... Um, you know, like a year there. So uh, the accusations of abandonment are just uh, just one more thing on the pile of propaganda and, and lies told about him. And and he went on to Palestine too, as well. That's yes. another part of the which. I yeah, guess while the, he was over there, he was you know going all over that place, which I go into in the book and yeah, and um, I think he did while there. Well, let, let's get into. You know, there's there was some debate on whether or not Napoleon actually went into the pyramid or not. So let's get into that, and then also right. too, you know, what what do you think that it was he was looking for inside the pyramid? What could this experience have been? Ah, uh, that was one of the more fun parts of the book when writing it, and yet the most uh, the, the, the the most technically difficult part of the book because I needed to make sure I was getting things right. Now, the, the, the question had been, did Napoleon go into the pyramid and ever spend a night in the pyramid? And we have J. Christopher Harold, the author I mentioned before, who wrote the book Bonaparte in Egypt, claiming that he never went into the pyramid or any of the pyramids. And uh, one of the reasons that Harold cites is that there's a, 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 a small square tunnel, which we've all seen in pictures and videos now, that one has to crawl through on all fours to get in to the inner area. And Harold's ridiculous assertion is that Napoleon would uh, would not have wanted to do this because it would be beneath his dignity. So therefore... He did not go into the pyramid. So here you have a guy who is a philosopher scientist at heart, 
who's in love with ancient history and is fascinated with these mysteries of the lost civilization. And he's uh, led this expedition uh, thousands of miles from home. And there he is at the greatest mystery, the last surviving wonder of the world. And he's, he's not going to go inside because his ego won't let him crawl through a little tunnel. And remember, he's not 30 years old. He's in great physical shape. You know, I mean, this was just a ridiculous assertion. So I'm looking at this. I'm going, you know, no way. There's got to be more to this story. And what I was finding in other more recent um, biographies, more recent historians, is that indeed there were uh, uh, multiple biographers who cite actual documents um, that, that place Napoleon um, at the Giza Plateau several times and on particular days. And even um, witnesses that were there with him talk about him emerging from the pyramid to receive an important message okay, about the Turks at Abakir Bay and things like that. So clearly the historical record from, from witnesses and sources, people that were there, talk about Napoleon having been in the pyramids and the Great Pyramid more than once. So you ask yourself, okay, where did Harold get this? And basically, the the negative connotation, the story that he never went in because you know his his ego would not let him crawl. This seems to originate with Burien. Burien was a school chum um, of uh, Napoleon's, who later on, when they're adults, became you know his secretary, his official secretary. Well, the problem with Burien is uh, the man had issues. He was corrupt. He was untrustworthy. He got fired more than once by Napoleon for his, you know, corrupt, dishonest uh, practices and lack of ethics. And he became bitter. And uh, so he started writing all this negative stuff and contributed to the lies and the propaganda, you know, this anti-Napoleon stuff. Well, um, it didn't take long. Historians have long um, considered Burian an undependable source. But, you know, in the mid-20th century, people were still kind of taking Burian um, at his word. Uh, since since then, in the last several decades, they pretty much see Burian for, for, for what he was. So with the actual historical record, um, you know, witnesses at the time, his contemporaries, people that were there, um, we learned that Napoleon did indeed uh, go inside the pyramids and particularly the Great Pyramid, and more than once. So that was a big step forward in trying to get at the truth of this interesting story about him spending the night in the king's chamber and coming out, you know, all pale and shaken and wouldn't say what happened to him. You know, now we could say, okay, he really did go inside the pyramid. Um, so, you know, what's what would the next question be? Well, your question was he expecting to find something? What was he expecting to find? Well, what was he expecting to experience? That leads us to um, looking at the people around him. Now, we already know the names of you know his uh, influences. We know there's Masons among them, although Napoleon himself was never a Mason. And we know that he had these interesting philosopher-scientists who were his close advisors, the closest being Gaspar Mange who went with him to Egypt. So I'm digging into Gaspar Mange because I'm thinking, okay, here's the guy who was his mentor in this search for the lost mysteries and all this stuff, okay? Here's the guy 
who, when the papyrus was found, he presents it to Napoleon. Okay? So, what possibly could Mange know about specifically the pyramid? So, I dig into Gaspar Mange a little deeper, and I learn that um, he's the, uh, the father of descriptive geometry. And I'm not even going to pretend that I'm a mathematician <laughs> in any stretch of the imagination. It's in the book, but essentially the smoking gun is that um, Gaspar Mange had delved into and presented mathematical and, and geometrical theories um, that ultimately lead to what's called the Mange point. And I would have to have the book out in front of me, but the Mange point is a geometrical spot, kind of a sweet spot in, um, in, uh, I forget the word, something, it, uh, pyramidal shapes. Okay. And what I argue basically is that Napoleon went into the, the great pyramid and spent his night in the King's chamber because he and Gaspar Mange suspected that the sarcophagus inside the King's chamber, the alleged sarcophagus, the famous stone box without the lid is where the sweet spot, the Mange point of the great pyramid would be located. Okay. The, 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 now the Mange point specifically points to a particular other type of, I don't think it's a tetra. It, it's a particular type of um, pyramid. Uh, yeah, it is a tetrahedron. Not, yes, yeah, it look, is a tetrahedron. Yeah, okay. I looked it up. Yeah. 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 It's like so the it, midpoint of however, a tetrahedron, something like that. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah, you probably understand it better than I do. No. But here's the thing. <laughs> I think I I think they thought that this Mars Point sweet spot um, would be located, as far as the Great Pyramid is concerned, its version of that would be inside that that granite box, that so-called sarcophagus yeah. in the king's chamber. Now, yeah, the why sarcophagus that there's never been a body in? Yeah. Right, exactly. But it fits a body, you know, someone laying down. Um, here's the thing. This, when you dig into the Mange point, this is where multiple planes, it's like an intersection of multiple planes. Okay? So think about that. If... If we know these things about pyramids, where there's this, you know, we, we've heard about the concept of pyramid power. We've heard uh, both Christopher Dunn and Joseph Farrell, among others, point to the engineering properties of the pyramid and have pre presented very compellingly their theories that the Great Pyramid was some type of machine, some energy-generating machine, okay? So now we're looking at the whole Napoleon episode from that perspective, and who does he have with him? His close mentor, Gaspar Mange, who happens to be the guy who theorized this sweet spot, at least you know, in tetrahedral um, uh, pyramid physics. Why not, you know, a pyramid like the Great Pyramid? And this is what I think and propose and speculate that Napoleon and Mange suspected. Um, they can find inside the Great Pyramid. Hmm. So, was this supposed to be some kind of... Was it like some kind of mind-altering thing or some kind of spiritual thing that it was 
it's supposed to uh, to affect I on think, someone? I think um, I think what then he did. You know, they they probably went in and you know did measurements and such, and Mange probably was confident that indeed the sweet spot, this Mange point sweet spot, was was right there in that so-called sarcophagus, okay? And from there, what Napoleon did was he laid down in the thing. Like tourists do to this. Uh, a good friend of mine just got back from Egypt. Yeah. And all he had to do was slip a few bucks to the tour guide, and, you know, his assistants held back the other people, kept them distracted, and my buddy got to lay inside the, the box there for a couple of minutes. So, but, you know, um, Napoleon, of course, he was controlling the whole thing, so he had hours. He had all night. And I think what he did was he got in there, he laid down. Now, remember, um, as you read in the book, Napoleon from early on had been fascinated with and had been an enthusiastic uh, practitioner of deep meditation. And he had said that meditation had allowed him to uh, uh, foresee things, possibilities and such, almost you know, you get the feeling that maybe he's talking about the way Tesla used to see things materialize, you know, in front of him, machines without having to do blueprints. So uh, it's almost kind of that quality. So here you have a guy who is, uh, you know, kind of a, a, a master of meditation, if you will. In the Great Pyramid, this possible machine that generates you know, maybe uh, multi-plane energies, and he's in the Mange Point sweet spot of that machine. So he lays down in the box. He applies his meditative uh, uh, methods, right? And what I think happened was he was indeed in the so-called Mange Point of the Great Pyramid. And laying in that box and applying his meditative methods, I think his... Uh, consciousness is subconscious tapped into another plane okay and he had some type of vision or dream vision that startled him now what it was about that's a whole other discussion it could have did he see did he think he saw his future did he uh, see multiple possibilities what did he see we don't know for sure because as the story tells us he emerges from the pyramid seven hours later, shaken, pale, and when asked what happened, he stops himself and tells the person, you wouldn't believe it anyway. <laughs> but it's not long after that that he indeed decides he needs to get back to Europe, and the rest is history. He goes on to victory, victory, victory. You know, he becomes the first consul. Um, he has... Uh, uh, yeah, a few great years of just doing wonderful things for France and, you know, um, the, suddenly the dynasties in England are even more intent on stopping him. And, you know, he, he goes on to his great glories and, and what we know in history, of course, the big fall and such. So you got to ask yourself, again, what happened to him in that pyramid? What did he see? Um, did he return to to France at that time because he knew this is the time he had to act? Um, we don't know. We can only speculate on that. But that's what I think happened to him in the pyramid. He went in there looking for that sweet spot, intending to do what he did, and he had some type of 
uh, extraordinary um, subconscious uh, or, or conscious, uh, what's the word for it, waking vision, waking dream. And um, he, he learned something. He saw something that uh, startled him, but set him on the course of the rest of his life. When you wrote about that in the book, I could, could not help but immediately think about Crowley and the Great Pyramid. And sure. what happened there, and I guess the what, where he was communicated the book of the law, and mm -hmm. all that. So yep. I, I wonder <laughs> if there's any connection <laughs> there. Well, that's that's what I was wondering. Yeah. I mean, did uh, was this influx of Egyptian themes into cult figures and esoteric orders in in Europe uh, in the 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 following years uh, was that really a, a result of the the campaign of egypt absolutely um e egyptology as we know it the discipline the scientific historical discipline of egyptology is credited with having its origin in the uh the napoleon campaign it, it, when he took all those savants he established a library. He established laboratories. The things he established, you know, the the, the historical uh, research centers, these became the uh, the main establishments and institutions of Egyptology um, for the re remainder of the 19th and going into the 20th century. So yes, absolutely, uh, Europe's fascination with Egypt really ignited and 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 took off because of Napoleon Bonaparte. And the influence um, on a, on occultism in particular. Oh, oh, certainly, certainly, yeah. Because again, we find out that Napoleon took these philosopher scientists with him, and also in his military staff there were some pretty interesting guys who were most likely, uh, if not Ma Freemasons, they were in other societies. But you had um, you had Colonel Desai, Desai or Desai who, um, very interesting character, and among the generals had a reputation for being very cooperative with the philosopher-scientists, who the other military staff were frustrated over their presence, even on the expedition. Uh, Desai, he was very cooperative with them, and they found, these experts commented, how much Desai seemed to know about their disciplines. Now, here was a guy who was a a military officer who hardly wore a uniform and, and kind of dressed slovenly, uh, but was an excellent, you know, soldier and all that. And he, he seemed to be a philosopher scientist minded guy himself. And he was one of Napoleon's uh, staff officers. Then you have Colonel de Hopepole. Now um, you should recognize that name in the Rennes le Chateau mystery. Because it's Madame de Hopel, whose uh, grave, uh, gravestone, grave marker, uh, is involved in the whole um, Berenger Saunier mystery. Okay? Nicolas Poussin. Um, yeah, the Nicolas Poussin painting. Arcadia. And here you have all that, Etna Arcadia Ego, that whole thing that you find in the, the Dan Brown and the, the Lincoln and Bajon, you know, that Holy Blood, Holy Grail, right. all of that. Here you have Colonel de Hopepole, who is uh, a relative of, you know, the, the same Madame de Hopepole and 
you know, there he is from the family that's neck deep in this mystery, this holy blood, holy grail thing. And he is one of Napoleon's staff officers, and he's one of the two guys who discovered, uh, allegedly stumbled, I say with quotes, upon the Rosetta Stone. Okay? Um, so, you know, there's a guy right there, you know, who's on a staff. And by the way, there was another officer, a young guy later on, who uh, is a descendant of Nicholas Poisson, the artist who did the painting in, in which uh, it's uh, the, the shepherds and three shepherds or something. I think the painting is technically called, but it's referred to from the, uh, with the phrase et in Arcadia ego. So here you had Napoleon, you know, almost surrounded by guys involved in that mystery. Okay, the whole Holy Blood, Holy Grail, um, Ren Le Chateau mystery. So uh, he's surrounded by those kind of people. It, we know his interests. He, he has this weird experience in the pyramid. Um, absolutely, the influence on the occult um, uh, where Egypt is concerned and, and Egyptian history and stuff like that, that, that um, you know, really emerged and, as I said, ignited in the 19th century. Yeah, that that in itself is also a result of Napoleon's expedition. Absolutely. And like yeah. the Order of Memphis, really good. We were talking about that. Yeah, all the, the connection o to the Knights of Malta, all the OTO origin stuff. The fact that uh, wasn't yeah. wasn't, wasn't Cagliostro like taught by a, a Maltese monk? Yep. And, I'm going in, in volume two, what I did with volume one was I laid the basic foundation, okay? I, I present three hypotheses to lay a basic foundation, and uh, in volume two, um, it became this. I realized, okay, it'll be the basic foundation. Vol in volume two, I will go back and cover and dig into a lot of these threads, some of which you've mentioned here, cool. people that are reading the book or, uh, you know, are asking questions and I'm saying, Hey, very good question. And that's the, the reason why I've got to do a volume two, because now I will go back and I'll say, okay, here's those threads that popped up. You know, when I was telling you before about Egypt, when I was telling you about his, um, the genealogy, when I was telling you about the whole Napoleon in America section, here's those loose threads. We're going to dig into that. And that's very much, very much going to have to do, um, have to do um, with uh, digging into the secret society, Masonic and other uh, such uh, connection to the whole Napoleon mystery. Cool. We look forward to it. Yeah, we're going to get into that. <laughs> Let's get yeah. into some of these forces that are arrayed against Napoleon. Now, normally people look at, you know, that it was Britain, that it was kind of the forces of counter-revolution that still held a grudge mm -hmm. against Napoleon for the for the French Revolution and everything that had happened there. But you maintain uh -huh. the book that that it goes deeper than that and you yes. you kind of single in on one house in particular the house of mm -hmm. Esty, which if you yes. do research on essentially the royal family of britain now is a branch of that <laughs> which yes. is interesting but the but the yep. hanoverians at the time when uh napoleon was around were were the main one of the main branches Yes, um, it's like you cannot, uh, as they say, swing a cat in Europe uh, 
without hitting um, some member of the House of Esty for the last, you know, um, uh, you know, over a thousand years, because they were in every that dynasty had somebody, you know, in in every monarchy of Europe. It seemed like you know they were just everywhere, and um, you know when you look at the history of the the they called them the allies back then the allied powers that were uh, resisting napoleon there you you can't deny there's the house of esti right there um because as you say you know in in england and england was the um they were like the lead attack dog in the whole thing against napoleon now the historical reasons are obvious of course the british empire was going strong and and wanted to continue going stronger Okay, and they had been recently, um, essentially, let's call it what it is. They were they had been recently humiliated by their colonies in America. Okay, so they were not happy with the young United States, which Napoleon greatly admired. Um, Napoleon, you got to understand, as we know, the Enlightenment had been going on since the Renaissance, and the United States was the first nation that truly was a product of the Enlightenment. Um, as a nation. And here was France uh, taking its lead. Now, Napoleon, of course, was part of, you know, was supportive of that and part of that spirit and everything. And um, as we know in France, this kind of led to some anarchy and chaos, and it led to what they call the terror. So suddenly all these uh, great grand French revolutionaries led by the Enlightenment were now just acting murderous and 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 uh, like a bunch of you know bloodthirsty anarchists, and they were chopping heads off left and right. Now it started with the royals and anybody who was against this Enlightenment revolution, but pretty soon they even started chopping off the heads of their own leaders. You know, and by the time at the height of the terror, you know Napoleon was quoted. You know they've fallen into anarchy now, and he was he became. You know, he was opposed to that. So uh, he was part of, as a young officer, he was part of uh, putting the terror down and stopping that chaos, um, which it needed to stop. He was absolutely right about that. They had they had just slipped into this wrath and, um, you know, it threatened to destroy France. So um, what Napoleon saw was that they needed to be practical in their application of the Enlightenment principles. And um, the reason that the House of Este and the oligarchs of Europe and England were so opposed to him was, you know, England wanted their empire, okay? The oligarchs of Europe, they kind of wanted their thing to continue. And here was this Napoleon guy who got his country, his radicals in his country under control, but, you know, continued France in the direction of Enlightenment principles, and uh, after he went to Egypt and he came back and, you know, he was running France, and then the Allies started eight of the nine Napoleonic Wars. Wherever Napoleon, you know, conquered, wherever he went in Europe and conquered, he would change their government structure and uh, apply Enlightenment principles. And this threatened the European oligarchs of the House of Este and, of course, their 
their attack dog England. They didn't like this because what do Enlightenment principles do? They free up the common man from the chains of the feudal system. Okay, and here you have England, as I said, uh, fairly recently humiliated by their colonies in America. And now you have this Napoleon guy who's basically beating them at their own game. He's conquering, you know, Europe and making it a better place than what he found when he, you know, conquered it. And they didn't like that. They couldn't have that because the next thing they knew, um, you know, is that their own people were going to be overthrowing them. And this just simply would not do. And that's um, a main motive for why they had they felt like they had to stop Napoleon. Um, they certainly couldn't hold. There was no individual in England, you know, or Europe at the time that could, you know, a leader, okay, like this that could really hold a candle to the guy, okay, um, and that scared them because people loved him. Where even the lands where he conquered, people loved him. The people in England, you know, when I refer to when I'm negative or I'm critical of what I call the Brits in the book, for example. I'm speaking of their aristocracy, okay? I'm speaking of the oligarchs and the, yeah. you know, the blue bloods, okay? I'm uh, the common people. They loved Napoleon, and that was the other thing that scared the hell out of England and their their House of Este masters in Europe was that, uh oh, you know, the people love this guy, um, and so hey, he had to be stopped, and and also he had to be lied about. They had to paint him like a monster, and that's what they did, and that's why they did it was because uh, people loved him. Why, why was the House of Esty so invested in trying to destroy him? What was the background there? And you, and you do allude also to Venice having a, uh -huh. a beef with him. Yes. And the Prussians and this kind of shadowy group that is related to the Prussians which is the Society, mm -hmm. the of, Society Lizards. of Lizards. And if anybody's ever read your other books or listened to our other interviews, Prussia comes up with Nimza as well. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, basically, what? yeah, you have the House of Esty that was, um, you know, very powerful. And their concern was, you know, okay, how was Napoleon going to affect their dynastic power, their hold, right? Um, but as you say, you also had Venice, the Venetian bankers, okay? Um, <coughs> Which were instrumental, and, um, to tie it back in, were instrumental in the, the Fourth Crusade in getting the yes. Crusaders to basically do their dirty work for them. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And um, be, because of Venice and their Machiavellian ways, and particularly, I think, because of um, what they did to um, their hand in, uh, you know, screwing with the Templars and, uh, you know, suppressing the information they had, just basically being, you know, how, how we've learned that they are um, and, and holding back and suppressing the information, um, you know, it goes way back. Napoleon, you know, knew that he had to crush them. He did not like uh, what we call globalization. Okay, he did not like the idea of banks controlling nations and populations and and such. He did not like that. He knew that that's what the Venetians really were at heart. He had he felt he had to go in and crush them, and uh, he he did a good job. But unfortunately, they had moved their headquarters um, 
before you know the days where he conquered Italy. They had already really mostly shifted operations um, to Amsterdam and, and then on to London by that time. So um, you, you also had um, – so, so you had the House of Este, you had the Venetian bankers, okay, and you had the, um, uh, the church, okay? There, there's the Pope and all, and all the Vatican um, concerns, you know, for their power. And, uh, you know, Napoleon, although he, um, for the most part, would be basically respectful of the church in certain ways, um, he kind of thumbed his nose at Vatican power, okay? At the same time, we know that he uh, put under house arrest uh, one of the popes, um, and uh, he had personal uh, philosophical views that, you know, um, that, that the church certainly wouldn't have supported. But mostly, the reason he bucked heads with the church, and, and they, of course, would have bucked heads with him, was over power. And yes, it does go back to the, uh, the, the papal involvement in the Fourth Crusade, as you mentioned. Um, so he, among the documents he was after... He was after any Vatican documents he could find. Um, so you had all these players, and really, really, what it comes down to, you you know, you can look at all the details and stuff, but what it comes down to is he threatened their power structure, okay? Because he was brilliant, um, because he was fueled by Enlightenment principles, um, because wherever he went, the public, even the conquered public, tended to love the guy, and uh, you know, there was no stopping him. And that's what scared them. He just basically threatened their good thing. And they used Britain as the premier naval power of the world. To, and of course, they had their own interests. Yeah. But they used them sure. to, to do so. And then this... Uh, oh, sure, this, yeah. like the, the Society of Lizards. Mm-hmm. Which I love that name, by the way. That's... <laughs> Yeah, and then interesting, you know, yeah. and, and and of course you get the inevitable people that say, "Oh, it's the reptilians." Huh? Right, no, right, no, right, right. Yeah. David, I yeah, we're not talking about reptilians. Yeah, yeah, we're yeah. you know, it's uh, it, it's it's the organization, a shadowy organization, going back in the medieval era of the German territories. Okay, and um, they established themselves among the. Um, the, what was called the battle junkers or the yunkers, um, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, element of uh, society, and they used the Teutonic Knights for their objectives to get power and wealth and to control the area. And um, what's interesting is that the way they go about it, talk about Machiavellian, is they befriend a group like the Teutonic Knights, and they provide them resources and they support them. They get ingratiated with them. They support them until they find the next group that can be useful to them. And then they buddy up to that next group and turn that group against the original uh, group that they were friends with. And they did this to the Teutonic Knights. um, And they did this uh, around the German territories. This group um, that, that was behind this Junkers movement and all this manipulation 
was the the actual when you go back the original source of uh, of the German nationalism of that that Prussian movement to unify all the German territories you know subsequent to the medieval era yeah. and uh, greatly greatly launching and building steam during the Napoleonic era okay um, so the roots the roots of NIMSA the German organization, the Prussian, excuse me, the Prussian organization NIMSA that I have written about elsewhere and that others have talk, talked about. Remember, NIMSA originates with Delschau, not with me. Um, I've just fleshed it out, you know, according to the clues he gives. Um, uh, this is all really building steam and uh, uh, speed during um, the Napoleonic era. So that's really interesting. And of course, yeah, that's something I'm going to go deeper into in Volume 2. In a lot of ways, Volume 2 is going to be even more fun than this first book, <laughs> to be honest, because it's, it's all that juicy stuff that you think, oh, but what about this, what about that? Yeah, that's, that's what I'll be getting to, the this and the that. And uh, so that's what you've got. What you've got really are the guys who would uh, you know, become the Prussian Nimza who are among these enemies of Napoleon. It sounds like we're we're coming to like all these players just keep coming up in mm-hmm. in all this material. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. Yep. The yep. Uh, see why I'm fascinated with the uh, the 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 19th century. Yeah. When you're talking about breakaway civilization, when you're talking about you know some of our mysteries that emerged in the you know the 20th century and in our times. You, you you go back to you just you, you keep you keep going back to the 19th century you see that that's where these threads lead to when you follow the threads backwards and that's why this era is so fascinating to me because uh, it had and continues to have huge impact on our lives you know um uh, throughout the 20th century and and even today so it seems like that was really a birthing of the 19th century the, the conquest of Egypt. Of what? Of, it seems like the, yeah, you could say that. the Egyptian campaign birthed a lot of strands of all these this different stuff into the 19th century sure. and helped create what it was. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, you know, Napoleon, uh, you know, to, to a basic degree, he and his associates were aware of this and, and were a huge part of that world. This is why in volume two, I go, you know, one chunk of it will pull threads that uh, emerged um, after his passing, after he's dead, um, because the man and the things he did and the things he uh, uh, put into place and was responsible for, um, a lot of these exist today. I mean, a French law is still essentially based on the Napoleonic Code, very much so. Um, you know, little things like, you know, go, go out in front of your house if you live in a, you know, a, a typical neighborhood in the suburbs um, and uh, look at the street addresses. Uh, odd on one side, even on the other. That originated with uh, Napoleon when he was kind of re-engineering the civic code and reorganizing uh, France. That, that, that started with uh, what Napoleon did in France. And here we still use this. And that's just a small thing. Um, Napoleon Bonaparte, it, I, you know, I say this in the book and I stand by this. 
clearly, clearly in the 19th century, there were two main figures that will be the ones a thousand years from now that will be remembered, and that's Napoleon Bonaparte and Abraham Lincoln. No one else, you know, comes close to them. And there were some great people in the 19th century and some great accomplishments. You mean but, Chester uh, Arthur is never going to be remembered? Who? Chester Arthur? <laughs> he had some awesome sideburns. Uh, no, got to give him that. Uh, you know, uh, you know, gosh, sorry. You know, I... Uh, <laughs> But uh, and, and maybe you know, uh, running a close third might be depending upon how technology goes. Nikola Tesla, of course, you know, because sure. if yeah. we were to ever really embrace his ideas, you know, but you, you get the idea. Here's what's interesting. Here's uh, of those three. Okay, if you want to throw Tesla in there, look at the kind of men we're talking about. Look what I lay out in the book, and we've been talking about um, what Napoleon was truly interested in. His first love was being a philosopher-scientist kind of guy, okay? Then you have, you know, a guy like Nikola Tesla, okay? And these two guys, one of them, you know, really kicks off the 19th century, and the other one emerges in the late part of the 19th century and, and, you know, is kind of part of that ushering in the 20th century, okay? And in between them, you've got this somewhat mysterious figure of Abraham Lincoln, who that's a whole other series of books and shows right there the 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 odd mysteries of abraham lincoln he was an there's something there's something about that guy and people have uh really you know gone gone you know much more deeper into that than i ever had so uh you know napoleon's right in there with you have these three guys who have this um either their interests or are extraordinary or, or they have some weirdness about them and uh yeah, absolutely. Napoleon and and you could add Tesla are are the bridge um, to the 20th century from the late 18th century. Absolutely, they were laying that down. Interesting point. You could say that about a lot of eras, but but really specifically in spades, the 19th century was really accelerating us into what we call the future. Yeah, so that's what I mean yeah. by that. Agreed. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean it, it's a fascinating century to 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 explore, and mm-hmm. um, I mean you know the twentieth obviously was much more explosive in progress oh, and war yeah. and all. But if you look at where the world was in eighteen hundred and as opposed to where it is in nineteen hundred, I mean it's 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 a it's a right. huge change. Well, in the early twentieth is impossible oh, yeah. to understand without the context of the nineteenth. I mean, right. it's, it's exactly. still so right. much You're like right the nineteenth. I mean, World War One, you still got people on horses. It's still you yeah, know. yeah. the The third section of the book, I, find, I I thought this this is some interesting stuff, and this is I think where you're going to further explore in the second volume. But mm-hmm. it's this whole idea of Napoleon not dying on St. Helena, but That's living right. into some kind of old age. And I, I found this this stuff really compelling. Yes, indeed. Um, <laughs> I do, too. And I can't tell you how... Uh, excited I was as I'm reading the biographies and and I first when I first read that it was noted in their lifetime okay how 
much Napoleon and his brother Joseph resembled each other. They were told that all the time. And then you get to that that day, that those period of days um, after Waterloo, after they've fled Malmaison, um, and they're at the uh, naval port of Rochefort. And you learn that not once but twice Joseph implored Napoleon to switch places with him. <laughs> And history tells us that Napoleon said, no, no, I will throw myself at the gentlemanly mercy of my opponents. And he surrenders himself to the British ship, the Bellerophon, and the rest is history. He's taken to England, not allowed to get off the ship. And then, of course, they they didn't tell him they were going to do this until the last minute. They take him off to St. Helena and you know the the poor guy withers away and eventually dies and that's that's it well i i didn't buy that because when you learn more of the details that um napoleon had himself already planned in detail um to uh chuck it all and go to america get to america and spend the rest of his life um, uh, designing and leading and, and uh, providing resources for expeditions um, of South America and, you know, other parts of the North American continent that, you know, were still wild at the time. And, um, you know, you read that uh, uh, there was, at, when he was at Rochefort, he's informed that there was an American frigate eight miles off the coast, and there were two U.S. naval officers, okay, who were there on hand with a small boat, a launch, rowboat or whatever, um, to take him to that American ship, and then they would sail on to America. And we're told that, you know, again, that Napoleon said, no, no, I'll throw myself on the mercy of the English. It doesn't make sense. Then when you read, it doesn't make sense to me, then when you read that in the past, uh, before before Waterloo, before being banished to Elba and all that, he used to um, uh, send his coach with a retinue of horses and guard off somewhere to one of the properties or out in the countryside to make enemy spies think that he was off on a hunting expedition. He either wouldn't be inside the coach or, gee, maybe did he have a double? You know, because there were multiple assassination attempts on his life, starting in Egypt. People, they were constantly trying to assassinate him. A lot of this was uncovered. The British had their hands in it. They were paying assassins to try to kill Napoleon. So he had started using tricks and doubles um, to begin with. And that's something he used. Hmm. And so... Again, we come back to Rochefort that fateful day, and suddenly he decides not to do that. You know, uh, no, I'll throw myself on the mercy. Okay, um, I it, my gut told me, no, 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 no. Mm -mm. He took the offer, and I go into the in the book why. Okay, people say, well, why would Joseph do this? Number one, nobody knew that they were going to exile uh, Bonaparte on Saint Helena. Okay. First, they had, they had requested, and the Prussians blocked this, they had requested that if, when Napoleon abdicated, that he got to choose his location of exile. And he had already chosen the United States. Okay? And the Prussians blocked that. 
They said, no, he doesn't get to choose. Well, then the impression was right up to the time that um, the Bellerophon sails with the Bonaparte exile into, you know, the harbor in England. Um, the impression was is that, well, of course, they'll keep him under house and a state arrest somewhere in, you know, north of London in, in uh, the English countryside. OK. And people say, well, why would Joseph volunteer to be in exile the rest of his life? Well, it was because he thought he would live in exile in a nice estate in the north of England. Okay, which would be pretty nice, and he would be able to accept guests and visitors. Well, we know that didn't happen. In fact, he, the Bonaparte exile, as I call him, because I believe it was Joseph, was not allowed to leave the Beler, the Bellerophon, not allowed to leave the ship. So then, uh, you know, his stuff is readied, and they set sail um, south towards, you know, of course, the coast of Africa, and that's when they inform uh, the Bonaparte exile of where they're going. So it wasn't until the last minute that Joseph would have found out that, uh-oh, he hasn't volunteered to be in exile in a comfortable estate in the north of England. He's going to be banished to a rock several hundred miles off the west coast of Africa. Yeah. Okay, but by this time he's this time he's committed and, you know, he loves his brother and he he believes his brother's freedom is important. So um he figures, well, okay, I'll still get to live in a nice house and be well-fed and tended and taken care of. And you got to understand, Joseph's ego was different than Napoleon's. Napoleon truly, when you read about him, really didn't, honestly didn't care that much about the pomp and circumstance. He, would he engage in it? Of course he would. Because he said, hey, I'm the first consul. Now I'm the emperor of France. I have to, I'm going to do this because I am the emperor and for the glory of the country, blah, blah, blah. But Joseph was known to be the one who was more of the show-off, okay? So for Joseph, the good deal was, oh, I'll still get my family, you know, will still get to visit me. Um, you know, they'll just have to wink-wink, pretend it's Uncle Napoleon, um, and, you know, I'll have this great estate. Well, he finds out at the last minute it's going to be St. Helena, that rock, okay? Then when he gets there, they find out that the house is kind of shitty, and um, things just go bad from there. But he's committed to this by now, because in my opinion, we are told his, by history that it was Joseph who came to the United States and lived in New Jersey and blah, 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 had parties and built a house. I think that was actually Napoleon. Posing and, as um, Joseph. Yes, posing uh. as Joseph. And Joseph heroically, tragically, but heroically lived out the charade. Um, and his his health deteriorated. They treated him like crap at St. Helena, you know, ostensibly because they believed it was Napoleon. There's some question that they suspected it wasn't Napoleon. Yeah, himself. that was some of the most compelling stuff was like where you had mm -hmm. one of the physicians that uh, mm -hmm. was not sure if he was actually dealing with Joseph or Napoleon. Right. Uh, right. The... There was some suspicion, I think, on the governor of St. Helena's part as well, that he may not have yeah, the actual they, guy. They, yeah, he was always he was always excessively concerned that there would be a rescue attempt. Yeah, but it was De Las Casas himself, one of the uh, the you know he he had got himself selected to be the guy who would be the biographer of Napoleon. And so he was spending all his time and with who I think was Joseph, we'll call him the Bonaparte exile. And uh, even he expressed 
a concern once that, you know, if I didn't know better, I would think that this is, this is not Napoleon, that this was Joseph. So if that little doubt is expressed, um, uh, just sprinkled in history, you have to ask yourself, how much did the British suspect it in reality that they didn't say anything? Okay. Now, remember, they had during, during the time post Waterloo, before Napoleon, before the Bonaparte exile turned himself in, okay? The English were concerned because they knew he wanted to go to America. They were concerned that he was going to pull something and get there before they could capture him. They had sent two British uh, Navy frigates um, to the United States, and they were patrolling the harbor, I believe, I think it was off... um, New York or Boston, it was one of the harbors, because they expected that Napoleon would pull something and arrive in America. So the British from the get-go were suspicious, you know, that something would be pulled. And here you have the officials on St. Helena wondering if a switcheroo had been done. And, of course, Napoleon would have had to have maintained the cover um, the best he could because what would prevent the British from spending, sending spies to the United States to kind of watch Joseph and try to determine if maybe, you know, that was the case, if this was Napoleon. So there was a stake in Joseph maintaining, in spite of what happened to him, there was a very serious stake in him maintaining the charade, in my opinion, in my analysis here, in the speculation, because, um, you know, it would have kept Napoleon alive. There's also... There's also things that you 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 reproduce in the book where I believe that quote unquote Joseph is being referred to as the emperor, and I don't oh, know whether that's um, because he, he would have inherited the title <laughs> or or if that's because that's actually Napoleon. No, it was it was a case of that was when it's very interesting. That was when. Um, you know, Joseph, I say with air quotes, who I believe was Napoleon, was walking down the street, I believe it was in Philadelphia, if I'm if I'm not mistaken. And a gentleman who had been, uh, from my research, it was he had served Joseph um, and Napoleon, okay? Um, and he was one of the Bonaparte uh, exiles that came to the United States. There were a lot of them, and I will be getting into that in volume two big time. But he was here in the U.S. He's walking down the street. Here he sees Napoleon with his associates and retinue. And he walks up and he goes, Mon Emperor, you know, I can't believe it's you. And, and we are told that Joseph says, oh, no, no, my, uh, my good man, you're mistaken. I, I am his brother. I am Joseph. And this guy who had been in like the personal king, you know, emperor's guard or whatever said, no, no, no. I know, essentially, I know my emperor when I see him. And Joseph, you know, who we're told was Joseph, had to, you know, emphasize, no, 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 I am not him. I am his. I am his brother. And, you know, the guy goes away not quite entirely buying it. Do you know and, what year uh, that yeah, was? Yeah, that right there. Um, that off the top of my head, no. Um, we're talking. Oh gosh, it was within that first year after. Okay. All the the uh, after Waterloo happened, so fifteen or sixteen. 
Because I'd have to look at the book. Looking at Wikipedia, of course, the book of knowledge, you know, like the yeah. Bonapartist claimants, right? I'm looking at this list of Bonapartist claimants of the French throne since 1814. Mm-hmm. So Napoleon is mm-hmm. defeated in 1815. Well, the claimant oh, yeah. to the throne is actually Napoleon II, which is his son by the Austrian princess. And when he dies in 1832, Joseph mm-hmm. is then the, the, it goes to Joseph. So that's 1832. So then Joseph, mm-hmm. even by the Bonapartists, the Bonapartist parties or their faction, even by them, that he wouldn't even be, be called the emperor in 1815 it would have been napoleon's son so it's interesting that they're calling him emperor <laughs> in some of the stuff well well, well no what, what you got to understand yeah you're right yeah, yeah. you're right i yeah I, I get your point but you're right but also you know if you've been the emperor's you know guard you know essentially his close secret service guy right you know in their in their their minds and hearts Napoleon was forever their emperor. Well, what I'm, know, in, what, in this specific case, yeah, what I'm saying is that lends credence to this because no one yeah. would have referred to Joseph, even if they th- if it actually was Joseph or they or it or they just thought it was Joseph, they wouldn't have referred to him as the emperor until 1832. So that like that's a, that's a, yeah. that's another thing that lends credence to the theory that there could have been. A switcheroo at some point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and and that's what I'm saying is when you look at the details, there's all all these circumstances and all these details and and, uh, such that really you have to ask yourself, my gosh, uh, did they do this? Did they pull this off? And I think they did. Um, That is why, you know, I get to the third part of the book and – you know, you've read it. You remember the part in the beginning where I say, "Look, those of you who just really don't have patience with uh, or can't abide with uh, speculation, just put the book down. Don't read the third part because, yeah, that's for me. That's the I know I'm going way out there. However, that said, I'm really confident in this because of these details we're talking about. That's of course why I um, wrote that part in the book and why I present them. Um, and you know, it's. Uh, it's just really, it's the most amazing um, enlightenment on really any historical figure I've ever studied. I went into this just knowing what most of us know or are told and taught about Napoleon Bonaparte um, with a little hint of that philosopher-scientist interest of his. And uh, by I'm telling you right now, by halfway through the research process, I had I became a great admirer of Napoleon Bonaparte. I I became a Bonapartist. This was one of the greatest men who ever lived, who was one of the most slandered great men in the history of humankind. I agree with the biographer Andrew Roberts. He should be like Alexander, like Catherine, like Frederick. Napoleon should be referred to as Napoleon the Great. Because he earned it, it's deserving um, uh, what the British historians did to uh, him for 200 years is uh, insidious and deplorable. And um, it should be 
cast aside and, you know, shame on them. Well, we understand why they did it, um, but still, it was just reprehensible. Um, and uh, that, that, that's where I was by halfway through the research. You know, a great admiration for this guy. You almost you have this fondness for him because you see that really for most of this time, he was that young idealist guy and, and not, not, you know, this despot tyrant. He made mistakes. He's not, you know, like this immortal, perfect, you know, uh, demigod. Of course he made mistakes, my gosh, but, um, you know, I am a great admirer. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I like Napoleon. I don't think he was that bad, honestly. He's probably no, he no worse than anybody at his time. He's often been con- compared to like Hitler and stuff, but in a way that he was like Hitler. Oh, oh. I mean, there were things that yeah, happened. No I mean, fault. you know, Serfiel's you know got this little about... reproduction of the Goya, uh, the the horrors of war. I mean, there was mm-hmm. there was definitely some things that happened, but you know that there, there was just as much atrocity and such that went on in the French Revolutionary Wars when Napoleon wasn't around. Sure. And you know, well, there's a the lot thing. of things in, on all the, sides. The, the, the period of the Napoleonic, so-called Napoleonic Wars, yeah. there were nine of them. Eight of them were started by the Allies. Well, Eight Britain of them just kept fighting. The Brits. What? Britain just kept Britain, fighting. What? The, the, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, the, there was only like a space of like not even a year that they were actually at peace. Yeah, N- Napoleon only actually officially started one of those nine wars. So why call them the Napoleonic Wars? You know, why not call them the wars of uh, of uh, British and Prussian aggression? You know, why not? Why not? That sounds familiar. Why not call them the wars of of European oligarchical? aggression well you know, you know we call the civil war uh, down here <laughs> i know <laughs> oh well okay there's an interesting thing that is also going to be part of volume two is uh, the bonapartists in america and uh-huh. and it's very interesting i don't want to go into it here but it's going to be real like i say volume two is in some ways going to be just as much if not more fun than volume one, but, um, you know, uh, uh, the whole thing about Napoleon, this comes up, this comes up. Well, what about Nostradamus? And when I get done laughing uproariously <laughs> and, and, you know, uh, I, and attempt to answer the question, here's the thing, all this BS about Nostradamus having identified, uh, Napoleon as the second antichrist or the first or whatever. Okay. Um, yeah. That was anti-Napoleon propaganda nonsense that was created by a guy who was using a gross mistranslation of Nostradamus, okay, like a hundred years or so ago, okay, it, which it, it is known that the translation that that guy was using of the Nostradamus stuff that he cites uh, it became known that it was a gross mistranslation, and here he was fabricating crap, basing it on a mistranslation. And I'm not kidding you. Uh, there's intelligent people now who are, are stubbornly say, "No, he was in Nostradamus," and I point that out to them, and they don't want to hear it. They, they, nope. They, it's in Nostradamus. <laughs> Nostradamus says he. It's kind of like with Crowley. Like what I discovered in Empire of the Wheel. I go into it knowing, you know, what we're taught about Crowley, ooh, evil dark guy, and I come out realizing that's not true at all. 
and I have a different view of Aleister Crowley. Well, the same thing with Napoleon. The Nostradamus stuff is BS. It's it, people need to just trash that um, well, thing where Napoleon is concerned. And then the whole thing recently with the uh, this is really hilarious. This comes up too. Um, this this story that they exhumed Napoleon's remains and they found an implant in his skull. Oh yeah, yeah, I remember, yeah. I remember you posted okay. about this. Was this like an alien implant? Yeah, I yeah, I trace that. Okay, <laughs> must Number have been one, the society the of lizards. <laughs> yeah, the, exactly. The story originates in the 1990s with the tabloids, with World Weekly News specifically. It's 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 a load of crap. It's That's and a trustworthy yet it was making the rounds. <laughs> yeah, it was making the rounds here a few years ago. Well, here's the irony. Okay, so they pulled the bones out of Napoleon's crypt. Well, I argue those were Joseph's bones to begin with. So it right. wasn't even Napoleon's soul to begin with. But then I would ask people, I go, do you really think that France is going to allow these, you know, woohoo scientists to pull the bones of Napoleon Bonaparte out of his crypt in Les Invalides? Okay, that place called Les Invalides, where it's at. Yeah. No, they're not. This is this is BS, people. But you still have people that will just kind of withdraw and say, "Well, you just you just don't know what you're talking about, Walter." You know, and I'm like, "Okay, all righty, woohoo, um, woohoo." You know, uh, it, it's just funny. But the Nostradamus thing is crap. It's nonsense. It's the Illuminati, um, man. People should just yeah. <laughs> They put an implant in Napoleon, dude. Did you hear? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know. Oh, man. <laughs> Pass the ball, <bog>, bro. <laughs> yeah. You know, the stuff that people want to um, latch on to and not let go of, even when you point out, you know, the evidence yeah. against it, they just don't want to hear it. Yeah, it's amazing. It's, re it's religion. It really is. It really is. Mm -hmm. Well, Walter, um, thank you so much. I mean, this has been a real pleasure um, to talk about this with you where can people get the book and i guess we kind of know but what's what's next well the book um uh, of course my books can only be found uh print on demand at lulu.com that's l-u-l-u.com if you put in my name it'll take you to a page where all my books are at fiction and nonfiction. um uh, but uh, it'll take you to a sales page if you put the title in where you can get this specific book, if you're looking to get this book, The Esoteric Napoleon. Um, and let's see. I, of course, am uh, beginning the early stages of uh, working on Volume 2 of The Esoteric Napoleon. Uh, of course, um, I've been uh, working a lot with, or I should say talking a lot with, and, and answering a lot of questions for the producer that's developing the uh, the Empire of the Wheel TV series. That's going really well. And um, I have a couple of uh, speaking events coming up uh, soon. I'm going to be speaking at uh, MUFON Orange County, uh, their group in may a couple of weeks and then uh i'm going to be speaking at a, a conference they haven't named it yet but it, it's tentatively scheduled for late september um when more details emerge on that i'll be able to kind of promote that on my uh, social media so those of you that are there can look for that and um you know i i think esoteric napoleon volume two is going to keep me pretty busy as a as a writer for the remainder of the year excellent Excellent. Serfiel, was there anything else that you wanted to add? or No, it's just really fascinating. I haven't uh, read it yet. I really look forward to reading it. 
Well, thank you guys for having me and, and yeah. you know, uh, as usual, showing the interest in the book. I'm I'm really proud of this particular book. I, I enjoyed uh, um, talking about it with you guys, really. And I look forward to talking about volume two with you. Yeah, and year. we just scratched the surface of what's in it. So there's a lot more to yeah. it. <laughs> so, yep, definitely, definitely. Excellent, Walter. Well, stay on the line for us. Uh, we're going to close this section out, but we'll be back to close out the show on Conspiranormal. starting your fortune 500 company yeah i'm trying to hypnotize myself into success so we've got a sponsor called you may have heard of it called ZipRecruiter. no i've never heard and of you it. can further hypnotize yourself into success and if you want to help us and help the show and ZipRecruiter, on behalf of our partner ZipRecruiter, here's why ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology Identifies people with the right skills, education, and experience, and actively invites them to apply to your job so you get quality, qualified candidates fast. It's no wonder that ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the U.S. Thus, rating comes from hiring sites on Trustpilot with over 1,000 reviews. And right now, if you go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Conspiranormal, you can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Conspiranormal. And keep listening to your self-help records. Hey, that was pretty cool, man. I think... Uh, yeah. Hey, I think, uh, you know, if you guys got a problem with that, we can just play it backwards subliminally through the entire episode. <laughs> <laughs> we could do that. Can you do some backmasking? Yeah, of course. All right. So, ZipRecruiter.com slash Conspiranormal, guys. Check it out. Why not, you know, have some backmasking? I think, you know, we may have we I think we might have some backmasking going on in certain sections of our show. That could be a possibility. You know, people all of a sudden want to donate a dollar to Conspira Normal. Which yeah, we're doing the advertising, but we're also still have patreon it's still there and we just did a patreon episode with walter bosley which you guys are going to hear in about two three days after this drops and we talk more about his book about the esoteric napoleon we talk about the napoleon bloodline and a couple of other interesting subjects too so that's going to be available for the patreons and guys you can join and become a patreon and listen to all the stuff that's on there. I think it's about 30 yeah. different little Patreon episodes that we have done. We've been getting a lot more prolific with that. Plus, the romp, the latest Romper Room number six is up there, which Romper Room number seven will be on the main feed. So that is there. Guys, check it out. One dollar just gets you in. That's a less lot of than... extra stuff, yeah. That's right. Um, so I would like to get your thoughts on that interview. Uh, that was very interesting. I hadn't been able to read the book yet, but now I'm looking forward to it. Um, 
in a lot of things I've been studying lately, you know, I've really been going back to the 19th century roots of a lot of things that happened in the early 20th century. And to, even though it's so obvious, you know, I never really thought of that being kind of, it seems like the, his conquest of Egypt really was the, the dawn of the 19th century. And you can see uh, dramatic currents springing from that in yeah. all this weird shit we're into. Yeah. And Napoleon is one of those figures that for me, you know, I, I there's an actual good, if you can sit through it, it's about five or six hour long miniseries that I think A&E did about like the middle of the 2000s, just called, simply called Napoleon. And it's good. It kind of gives you a good kind of primer on the life of Napoleon and who he was and his relationship with Josephine and uh, the relationship with uh, Tyler Rand, the foreign minister, who we didn't mention in very much, but uh, who kind of really kind of really sabotaged Napoleon behind the scene. And he was someone that uh, Napoleon called shit in a silk stocking. That was actually a quote. And if you, I think you took like foreign relations and stuff like that back in college. Was that what you did? Yeah, international yeah, relations. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Tyler Rand is considered one of the, you know, pr- prime um, diplomats that formed the the whole idea of all that. So, um, I definitely, I don't, I don't see Napoleon as like a Hitler type of figure. Um, no, there but- were some things that happened. You know, we talked about. You know, you've got this little. Goya reprint up here, which is the horrors of war from uh, the the Spanish, the Peninsular campaign. Well, which, besides, I mean, it's just the that classic and Republican antagonism between a popular tyrant who does fix a lot of things, help a lot of people, but uh, sacrifices a lot of the you know democratic ideals in the process. Also, so it's you know it's. It's complicated. Yeah, it is. It is complicated. You know, Beethoven, when he he extolled Napoleon, you know, he loved Napoleon. He saw him as this this uh, very virtuous. A lot of the romantic, the early romantic poets saw Napoleon as very virtuous. But when he declared himself emperor, Beethoven actually tore up the symphony that he had dedicated to Napoleon because he was yeah. so disgusted yeah. by it. Um. You know, he's kind of, in many ways, really the first kind of modern leader in very in, in a lot of ways, too. Um, in well, that, the, well, the, the like, emperorship uh, was just kind of a, yeah. you know, that was just to get people on his side, start this whole, you know, you give the, 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 the aura of royalty, but not actual royalty, just kind of a, 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 a tight central authority. Well, like he talked about tonight, the... Uh, the, the 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 Christ ritual being something that's enacted throughout time, and someone being elected to be this messianic figure, yeah, just like that, you know, it's it's very similar with Napoleon, and and you know, back to the the Roman times, this you know idea of of a historical mission of of the emperor, you know, but still being a part of this republican ideal, and that you know, it's just this classic classic antagonism you know and it reminds me of the that reminds me of the dune books too where like mm-hmm. paul young paul feels like there's this historical mission that he's kind of that chooses him more than he chooses you know and that he has to write 
right things in the universe and a, a lot of a lot of eggs are going to get cracked in the process you yeah know, like. because if you look at napoleon i mean he was really the right he everything the the events that's around in him propelled him to where he needed to be like he never would have been anything but maybe some kind of common soldier time makes the man if the revolution had never happened if the revolution had never descended into a republic it descended into some kind of chaos he would have never been able to rise to the position that he did. Yeah, that's, that's and he was point. very, very lucky at certain points. Whenever he the government would fall and he would have a protector in that government, he was able to, you know, get to not go to the guillotine at a certain point. You know, um, so all these the these the, given the chance at twenty six years old to lead the army of Italy. You know, he wouldn't have never risen had probably like all these other men gone to the to the guillotine, essentially. Yeah. You know, had yeah. they not been killed yeah. in either the war sparked by the French Revolution or by the terror that happened during the French Revolution, the Napoleon may not have gotten where he would have gotten or gotten the chances that he would have gotten. Yeah. So he was, you know, right place, right time, essentially, if you look at the history. So, very interesting. Um, I, I really, I really enjoy talking about history in this podcast. Is I don't get to do it a lot. Yeah, um, it's, m- it's one of my main passions. I don't really get to talk about it a lot. It, it's it's really fun to to speculate with because we have so much uh, material, you know. Yeah. I mean, what they were trying to, what we were talking about tonight, and what they, you know, glistened from Egypt. Uh, you know, it took a long time to actually get anything out of that, and a lot of it was really speculative, and you still see that in a lot of mysticism today, where everything's, a lot of stuff is based on 19th century interpretations of Egyptian stuff that wasn't even necessarily true. Right. Uh, but, you know, that, but actually, you know, his actual life and conquests are very well documented. We have so much material to work with, but it, yeah, very fascinating tonight. Yep. And, um. That's the kind of stuff you guys get when you listen to Conspiranormal, guys. We, we, we're delivering a great product, and uh, we're, we're trying to hit things for, to keep the show going. Like we said, patreon.com slash conspiranormal. Yes, sir. Like I said before, join as as much as a dollar. And really, guys, in my estimation, like if I've got a thousand people to listen to the show, and they give a dollar, just do the math. You know, that would be something that's really help that really help us out. You can make us thousandaires. Yeah. 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 We can continue to pay for Rob's booze and our tiki drinks. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Thank you so much. Uh we're going to be back next time with another guest. Um, I think it's gonna be interesting. But uh Serfiel, you will uh, I don't think you will be here for that one. I think I'll be I think missing in Rob. action. I think okay. I will be in, in sunny San Diego area. Right. Or on a plane coming back, probably. Yeah. yeah, probably. In transit. All right, guys. Thank you for listening, and we will be back next time on Conspiranormal. Conspiranormal. I'm Merovingian Descent. Mm-hmm.